our last Sunday in Deuteronomy. 49 weeks later, here we are. Well, here we are in Deuteronomy 34, and you might see there at the beginning the header, the death of Moses. It made me think about funerals. Funerals are always an odd experience. Being a young pastor of a young church, I have only performed a handful in my official role as pastor of this church, but I've been part of many in the past, just as a speaker or um, just attending. And what is interesting is that I think for me, funerals can be largely categorized into three different types in my experience. I'm sure there are outliers that do not fit into these categories for you, but the majority for me do. Uh, First, there are those funerals for the people that have proven by their life and through their words that they did not follow Christ. And these are obviously somber events that largely manifest in a feeling of sadness for me because of the elephant in the room called eternity, and nobody wants to talk about it. Uh, The second group is a difficult category of funerals where the eternal state of the person is left as a question mark. Perhaps it was the unfortunate circumstances surrounding their death. Perhaps it was the ambiguous nature of their life and whether or not they actually had allegiance to Christ. But the air of these funerals is usually also one of sadness and confusion for me because there's this unshakable feeling of the mixture of hopefulness and hopelessness. The third category, though, is an honor to officiate or attend. These are the ones that are truly celebrations. These funerals are for those people with whom the people attending the funeral have walked through life and they've seen an ever-increasing sanctification, a change in that person that's always in a growth pattern towards allegiance to Jesus. And it's a blessing to participate in these funerals for faithful servants of Christ. Would you guys agree? Those are always celebrations. Now, there's definitely in these cases a deep sadness that the present incarnate and spiritual body of Christ, known as the church, is going to be lacking this person. They're going to have a loss of this saint. That's obviously sad. Uh, But there is a longing for eternity future that goes along with that when we will worship in the fullness of life with this saint. And in these funerals of faithful saints in which I've officiated or participated There's another feeling that outweighs these others. It's the overwhelming knowledge and celebration, not just of the person, but of the faithfulness of God. I find that when I officiate weddings for two people that are truly passionate about Jesus Christ, they truly do disappear. They might show up again later for the reception and the the photos of the wedding, but during the moment where everyone is thinking about them being joined together, they disappear and Jesus gets all the glory. And the same thing is true for funerals of faithful saints. These faithful saints almost disappear and Jesus gets the glory because of the knowledge of the faithfulness of God that got the person there. You see, when these faithful saints leave the body and are present with the Lord, it's almost as if they disappear from view, even though their earthly bodies may be there present at that funeral. And it's not because of anything other than the fact that their faithfulness, the saints' faithfulness, is eclipsed by the faithfulness of God to sustain them in endurance until the end of their earthly life. When I was a young buck, I used to think, man, this this Jesus thing, I'll just stay passionate for Jesus. This will be easy. And then every year that passed, people started to fall away and things like Little League started to come up and having children and house chores and vacations and, you know, life. And slowly but surely, you start to realize that the faithful saints become a remnant. 
And so it truly is a miracle of God that God can sustain a saint until the end. And so it's a joy and an honor to be part of those celebrations as we watch the movement of one we love into the eternal life with God. And brothers and sisters, I hope that each one of us in this room, when each of our times comes, that our funerals might be experienced as those of this third category. And that's honestly something to start thinking about now, not then. Then it will be too late. Why do I focus so much on a morbid and macabre subject? Because our text before us is just such a celebration. This morning we come to the death of Moses, an epilogue to the book of Deuteronomy, but even more important, it's a conclusion to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, known as the book of Moses. And in this short section, we will see the emphasis that God has proven faithful as the Exodus God and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses. Faithfulness as the God of a righteous covenant. But then we will also see the commission of God's people and the prophetic pointer, if you will, hyperlinking to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And there's so much good in our text today, so let's just jump right into it as we conclude the book of Deuteronomy with a confirmation of the faithfulness of the Exodus God. That's what you can write down as the title for today, a confirmation of the faithfulness of the Exodus God. Let's read the first portion of our text this morning, starting there in verse 1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. The first thing that we see this morning is this. The creator... The Exodus God has proven himself faithful. The creator, the Exodus God, has proven himself faithful. It's part of our brokenness as humanity. In our original sin, we constantly look at God and we say, I'm not going to trust that you're faithful until you're faithful to me as to how I want you to be faithful. But the story of the Bible is that God is faithful. He need do nothing more in your life or mine. He is faithful, as we will see today. And the author is clear to give us the location of where God leads Moses. This place that he's standing, he's going to show him how faithful he is. You see, this is a location that is on the east side of the Jordan River, uh, in the southern central latitude of the land of Canaan, or what would later be known as Israel. Let me see here if I can show you what I'm talking about. Here is where, is that showing up? That is where Mount Nebo is. And so you've got, uh, you've got your mountain range here and your mountain range here, and he's standing in Mount Nebo on this mountain range, and you'll see it in a second. And so the reality is, is that he's able to see all of Israel. This is the location that's on the east side of the Jordan River, and it's looking out across the entire land. Now, I was lucky enough to stand on this point in Israel with my wife years ago, and uh, there's a... Uh, statue that marks what they think is the, the place where he was most likely standing. 
that incorporates the bronze serpent that's held up by Moses to stop the plague in Numbers 21, and what it foreshadows in Christ dying on the cross of Calvary as our salvation from eternal death is mentioned in John 3. It's a beautiful statue, and it's an amazing moment to stand up there. The story was, was that we were late getting there, and they were about to close it, and so everybody was so stressed out getting the bus up this hill um, to this, I can't remember if it's a monastery or just a church, but we get there, and we all pour out, and everybody's running really fast, and you get to the edge, and you look out, and you see the entire land. Now, we're spoiled in Oregon. And so we get to see this kind of thing a lot. But even then, even having been on mountains in the Northwest, you run up to the mountain and you stop and you realize what Abraham, or excuse me, what Moses was able to see. It's an amazing spot because in every direction you can see part of Israel. This is a rough map. It's kind of hard to see, but you can kind of gauge what it's talking about. This is the vantage point that you can see. You can see the entire valley and on out into the Mediterranean there. Okay? You can see Mount Hermon all the way to the north there, the snow-covered caps uh, in the land of Dan, and the desert in the south and the Dead Sea before you. You can see the valley to your right, ending in Lake Kinneret, also known as the Sea of Galilee. Moses truly saw every part of Israel. And to us, we think, oh, that looks kind of uh, yellow and, and dying. No, it's very green in comparison to the rock that's around it uh, in the area that the author notes is the land of Moab. And so the author combines two interesting literary hyperlinks. He speaks of the various portions of the land based upon the dispersal uh, of the tribes that was spoken by Moses. Now this speaks to the confidence that Moses has in standing before the land, seeing with his own eyes that this land is going to be Israel's. It's going to be dispersed. There's many commentators who state that by him standing there, God was saying, this is now in the possession of your people. And so he was seeing what God was going to do in providing for the people. But he also makes this statement in verse 4. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. Now, in using the tribal names and speaking this confirmation, the scribal author that is assisted in sewing together the Mosaic writings of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Remember, Moses is the core author, but then most likely scribal authors and editors help put it together. Uh, this person points the reader back to the beginning of the Torah in Genesis. Remember that one of the main goals at the beginning of Deuteronomy was that it would open our understanding of God and his character. Do you guys remember that? Now, you should have seen that throughout the entire book of Deuteronomy because about every other week, one of the titles was God's Faithful, right? You guys probably got tired of that, right? God's Faithful. God's, you get tired of God being faithful? Anybody? No? Okay, good. Yeah. You see over and over again the character of God. And throughout the laws of Deuteronomy, even as Ryan prayed this morning, we saw echoed again and again the righteous and just nature of the good God of the Exodus. But the characteristic that is most prominent in Deuteronomy, from my opinion, and even some might say above his holiness, righteousness, and justness, is his covenant faithfulness. That's the core piece that is captured here in Deuteronomy. And this statement here in verse 4 reminds us of the picture that the Torah has painted of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, that he faithfully loves protects, provides for, and cares and saves his people. And this connection of the land and the patriarchs takes us back to the beginning. You see, in verse 1 there, notice in, in verse 1 of 34, it says that he took him up and he showed him all the land. Now, you guys might think, okay, yeah, all the land. This is a, a quantifiable statement. 
No, there's something more being said here. The word in the Hebrew, okay, is et kal ha'eretz. Ha'eretz, that part in red there that you can see on the, see on the screen, the reason I point it out to you is because that word, that phrase needs to be powerful in your mind as you read through the Torah. This isn't just land like I just went and bought a parcel of land. This is containing the covenant faithfulness of God. It is such an important thing in the mind of the Jews, as we've talked about previously in Deuteronomy, that they actually have a newspaper that's called Ha'eretz, the land, right? Now, this isn't an advertisement. You don't have to go buy it for $1, just, this, just saying. That was from this morning, okay? The fullness or the wholeness of the land is part and parcel with the covenant faithfulness of God. It's not just a noun. The people of Israel are people whose covenant is based on land. And so to any Jew, whether it be a Jew who grew up in New York or grew up in Salem, Oregon, or grew up in Israel, when you say to them, the land, what land do you think they're thinking about? Israel, always. Ha'eretz is always the land of Israel, the land of Canaan the land of Israel, the land that was once known as Palestine as well. There is no doubt in the mind of a Jew that this land is important. And so most likely this statement of Deuteronomy is meant to serve as a bookend on the opposite side of Genesis 1. You guys remember Genesis 1? Can you think back before you turn there? What's Genesis 1-1 say? Can anybody quote it out loud to me? In the beginning, what? The heavens and the which is where our Western mindset, we turn it into a science book. This is the Hebrew. Bara Elohim. God created. Elohim is the word for God. Et Hashemayim va'et ha'eretz. Okay? Notice the last word there. It's not earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the land. What land was he talking about? Most likely, the readers of the Torah would have said, Israel. Now, we look at it from our Western mindset and say, this has to be a science textbook. It's not. It was written as ancient Near East literature. And this is why from Genesis 1, you have this understanding of God creating the land of Israel. Go ahead and turn there with me to Genesis 1. If you go to Genesis 1, uh, in the place where the church believes that Jesus was crucified, there's this old tradition. You can actually see it in Middle, East, uh, Middle, Middle Ages uh, painting, that the blood of Christ dropped down onto the ground, and below the ground was buried the skull of Adam, because that's where the Garden of Eden was. Now, there's not a lot that can connect that and make sure that that is actually true, but to the Jewish mind, when they read, in the beginning, God created the heavens, what's up there, and the earth, it's actually Ha'eretz, the land, they immediately were not supposed to worry about how it was created. What they were worried about was who it was created by. This was an argument for the fact that Yahweh was their creator God, not one of these other gods that they saw in the land. Genesis 1 was a statement of the preparation and provision of Ha'eretz, the land for the people of God. A land prepared for God's divine partners, humankind, to subdue the earth from which it would be a base camp to cover all the nations and bring them into allegiance to Yahweh so that all the nations might know that he alone is God. And then in Genesis 12, after 11 chapters of the downward spiral of mankind, where we just took it and ran with it and destroyed it and fought against the God that created us and provided the land for us, in Genesis 12, God introduces us to a man named Abram. 
a man called out of the darkness of pagan idolatry to go into a land that God would call him. What do you think that land was that he was calling him to? Israel, Ha'eretz. <clears throat> this is from Genesis 12, 1 through 2. <clears throat> now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to Ha'eretz, the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You see, this doesn't register with us as Westerners. We buy a house to sell a house to move again and again and again and again. We've become the nomads that our ancestors actually tried to fight against when they settled this land, right? Land is nothing to us. We buy and sell it as if it's nothing. To the Jews, it is their very lifeblood. And so this covenant is not okay, I'm going to make you my people, and you get this land. It's one in the same. And then as the covenant unfolded, the land was an integral piece to God's covenantal love of the people of Israel. Not only would he make Abraham great and bring him to the land, but in Genesis 15, he says this, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and the Parasites. That's just a bad pastor joke. <clears throat> so here in Deuteronomy, as the Torah comes to a close, you can see this bookend that from the beginning of Genesis 1-1 all the way until Deuteronomy 34, what has been the point? That God is proven faithful because no matter how screwed up his people are, He's going to bring them into the restored land that he's provided for them. What we see is the scribal author putting a seal on the fact that God has proven faithful to his people. To those he called through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is a faithful covenant God. He created the land in which they could dwell. He saved them from the kingdom of darkness known as Egypt by pulling them through the exodus. And he would be with them as they went in to take final possession of his promises in the land he intended for them. You see, the Creator, the Exodus God, had proven Himself faithful in Deuteronomy 34. Now let's read on. Verse 5, back in Deuteronomy 34. Go ahead and turn back there with me. Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. I don't know how much you, fanfare you get at your funeral, but Moses got buried by the hand of God himself. That's pretty amazing. Okay? But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Now Moses was 120 years old when he died. His, eyes, his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. And the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, that's not N-O-N-E, right? He actually had parents. Another bad pastor joke. The son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. The next thing we see here quickly is that the people of God are the ongoing army of the faithful Exodus God. The people of God, whether it be back then going over the Jordan River, or today in 2019 here in Salem, Oregon, the people of God are the ongoing army of the faithful Exodus God. As humans, we have a tendency to elevate other humans to a position of deification, whether it be musical entertainers, actors, 
celebrity megachurch pastors, or even the pastor in our local church. We love to have someone to deify and put on a pedestal. But while it is true that God uses human leaders within the church and within the institutions of government, for example, we must be extremely careful to keep ourselves from deifying them. To this end, the writer is careful to honor Moses, saying that he was the servant of Yahweh and using idioms that speak to his youthful appearance and demeanor even at death. And at the same time, the author is making it clear that the mantle of leadership has been handed off to the new generation of leaders and that Moses was only who he was because he was a servant. It was common practice of the day to revere previous deceased leaders. Much like the story you guys might remember of Saul going and visiting the witch of Endor so that she might raise the prophet Samuel from the dead to seek his counsel. So the burial place of Moses is left purposefully ambiguous so that it did not become a place of cultic worship, as happened with other deceased leaders. Later, Jewish rabbinic writings and even the book of Jude in the back of the Bible speak to something happening with the body of Moses in a spiritual way, sparking debate about whether he ascended directly to heaven or simply died in bodily form. But the writer makes it clear here that none of this is the focus. Nobody cares what happened to Moses afterwards, quite honestly, because his job was done. Moses had been faithful, but his time was over. And so from that point on, the people of Israel were to be led by Joshua, the assistant of Moses. And this statement reminds us of a few things that we introduced as other goals in reading Deuteronomy. First, Deuteronomy was going to open up our understanding of the mission of God and God's people. Hopefully that's been accomplished for you as we've read through. Regardless of their leader, the people of God are to subdue and conquer in the name of Yahweh, just as the new covenant church is led by elders, but ultimately under the rule of the eternal Jesus. The people of Israel were ultimately ruled by Yahweh himself. And their job was to follow his commission, his command to go and subdue the earth in his name. Secondly, we learned that uh, the Deuteronomy was to open up our understanding of the Bible. As we looked at in Deuteronomy 32-33, we saw the scribal editors sewing together the seams between the Torah and the historical books of Joshua. The mission of God's new humanity does not change no matter where it is in time. God's people are to be priests and kings who proclaim to the world around us that we are subject to the gracious rule of an enduring king. Now let me say that again because I think as I've taught through this, I've gotten the feeling that a lot of people have heard this, but a lot of times I think when we hear a commission of God through the word of God, we think, oh, that's so nice. I'm so glad I'm saved and going to heaven. Glad everybody else is going to do that right? So let me say that again. Our job does not change. Every single person in here, it is your job to be a priest and king or queen who proclaim to the world around us that we are subject to the gracious rule of an enduring king. Now run your life and the way you live it through that filter and ask the question, am I doing that? God's people are to be a people made up of citizens under a gracious sovereign, with whom we have entered into gracious covenant. And by being that people, not just for two hours on Sundays, but by being that people every moment of every day, letting his rule and reign oversee all that we are and do, we will draw people to him. You see, it's so easy to invite a person to a church service. Kanye West can do that. Sorry. Anybody can invite people to a church service. But it takes a lot to hold a person there because 
If the people that come and visit a church don't see a genuineness and a consistency that what is being learned is being applied and worked out in life, eventually they'll walk away, saddened by the fact that the church is full of nothing but hypocrites who say a lot of things with their mouths but don't live it out with their lives. We can evangelize with our mouths as much as we want, and we should, but if we don't live a life that matches, or at least is on a trajectory to match the humility and love of our God, then people will walk away. Recall with me one last time the words of Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. We've gone over this dozens of times over the last year. It says this, it says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? As we learned from Deuteronomy, which opened up our understanding of God as king and ourselves as his citizens, and we also opened it up to understand more and more what it is to be obedient disciples, we learned what our call is, that our call is to be that people that reflect who our God is. You see, we are called the body of Christ for a reason. That's not just a weird metaphor. People are to look at the collective group of you and I and say, there is Jesus. Well, Hans, we fail all the time. Yes, you do. But when you fail, are you humble? Are you ready to confess? Are you ready to repent to one another? Because in that, they will see Jesus. You see, in following the God of the Bible, we are to be ambassadors of his rule, characterized by his love, his righteousness, his justice. And we have learned throughout Deuteronomy that while the immediate application of the laws of God may not fit the 21st century, the underlying principles of each and every law still rings true for us today. And in looking to Christ as our King and allowing His reign in our lives by the Holy Spirit within us and within the church of which we are a part, we begin to understand what it is to love one another and to show that we are His disciples by the way we care for each other in humility and in kindness. When we cast our eyes upon the amazing grace of the Exodus God, that expressed himself in full form in Jesus of Nazareth, we become overwhelmed with the gracious love of God that will naturally result in an overflow of obedience to his commands and submission to his people. And so you and I, dear church, dear brothers and sisters, along with all the other faithful disciples of Jesus in Salem and the world over, we are a continuance in this long line of the offspring of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob the offspring of God the Father, the offspring of the people of Israel. Just as the people of Israel needed to mourn their leader but then move forward in victory to conquer in his name, we too refresh this similar act every Sunday when we gather to mourn the death of our earthly leader, Jesus Christ, but then to raise up our anointed heavenly king, that same Jesus Christ who resurrected from the grave. He now calls us to leave this place every Sunday and proclaim his resurrection and reign by the way we live our life. Amen? Amen? We'll see that in great depth as we go through the book of Mark. Well, let's finish these last few verses here in Deuteronomy 34. Take a look at verse 10. 
says, And there has not arisen a prophet since, since in all in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. With that word, we close this section of the Torah. And this Torah and the work of Moses in guiding the Israelites, it was meant for one thing and one thing only. You can write this down as the third point this morning. Ultimately, Moses was paving the way for the ultimate prophet, Jesus the Christ. Ultimately, Moses was paving the way for the ultimate prophet, Jesus the Christ. The scribal editor and author, whether it be Joshua or someone else or a combination, writes a statement here that points to the fact that there is no one who could fill Moses' sandals. They were big sandals to fill. And even if it is a scribal editor or author, it is not without authority because it follows in line with the same statement from Moses himself. Go back with me a little bit to Deuteronomy 18 in your Bible, just back to the left. You're thinking, no, we just finished. We're not going to go back. Deuteronomy 18. Take a look at verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, to the people of Israel. Like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And Yahweh said to me, The Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, what he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name or speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Guys, the world is full of men and women Religious men and women who say, uh, you got to follow me because I, I was just talking with somebody. I saw Jesus in my toast. Follow me. No, right? The world is full of people who make claims and who say, I'm a leader. Follow me. But the reality is, is most of them peter out and die and everybody forgets about them. It's happened since the time of Jesus. All of Israel, Moses included, they were looking forward to an ultimate leader that would be faithful beyond even the authority of Moses. And we see in the New Testament that the Pharisees even say, man, we've had a ton of those guys step up and say that they're the guy, but none of them have been the actual guy. But we are in the amazing position to have 20-20 hindsight as new covenant believers. We know that the breadcrumbs that are scattered throughout the Old Testament ultimately lead us to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You know how we know that? Because he said, kill this body, and three days later, what's going to happen? I'm going to raise again. And he did it. And he had witnesses. And then he had witnesses that showed him ascending into heaven. He was the ultimate prophet because what he said came to pass. 
The qualifiers that are contained in Deuteronomy 34 for the one that would ultimately fulfill that role are two things. First, signs and wonders that Jesus himself would complete, but then also the statement that just like Moses, he would see God face to face. Now, this is very interesting. First, in the signs and wonders referred to in verse 11 of our text today, great deeds of terror spoken of in verse 12, these are synonymous because in both, Moses defeated the evil spiritual powers and had gone directly to war against the pagan deities of Egypt by defeating them in the great plagues. Uh, One of the elders was sharing with me that a few people were, after uh, I taught the other day about the lowercase g gods and the other spiritual beings, that a few of you were, were like, yeah, that's a lot of new information, right? If it was for you, I'd highly suggest you go to the Bible Project. They have an entire section, I think it's five videos, on spiritual beings throughout the Bible, and that will help clarify for you. But that's one of the reasons that we teach the book of Moses in Sunday school the way we do, that it was these cool party tricks and then it convinced Pharaoh to get out of Egypt. But the reality is, is you're missing the underlying story. The main story is that Moses was going to war against every pagan deity that was big in Egypt to show that they were powerless and only Yahweh was powerful. That's the story of the Exodus. And by breaking Pharaoh, who was the incarnate version of the gods, by breaking his power, he showed that the entire religious system was corrupt and broken. And so when it says that Moses in Deuteronomy 34 did all these mighty, powerful deeds and great deeds of terror that he did in the sight of Israel, that's what it's speaking of. That Moses had used the signs and and, um, uh, the deeds to go against the pagan deities of Egypt to defeat them. Now, in the Gospels, we're introduced to Jesus in this exact same fashion. Luke, the historian, uses this as a defining characteristic of the Acts of the Apostles and the fact that they were in the will of God, that they used similar things to fight back against the false gods. But he even defines Moses by this statement. Here's one one of many that I could show you. Uh, Acts 7.36 says this, This man, meaning Moses, led out Israel, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is a defining characteristic of Moses. But in the Gospels, the record of Jesus' miracles are recorded to show that he is indeed the prophet because he does similar miracles. Take, for example, and there are dozens of examples, but just look at this one that was said after Jesus fed the 5,000 in John 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the, capital P, prophet who is to come into the world. They're referring back to Deuteronomy 18. They're referring back to Deuteronomy 34. Jesus was the prophet that was foretold in the Torah. And signs and miracles would establish some form of spiritual power. But even then, Jesus himself tells us we can't just base our ideas off of that. Because false prophets could use supposed signs and wonders. And guys, there are people throughout the world. There are uh, witch doctors that, that uh, are in Haiti and in uh, Burkina Faso that are known for doing signs and wonders. This still happens just because we are you know, people that believe in science, uh, like Nacho Libre, right? Or the guy with Nacho Libre. Uh, we, we are not people that look to signs and wonders, but it happens all over the place. And so Jesus himself said, don't turn just to that. This is Mark 13, 22. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Okay? So the reality is, is that this was just half of what needed to happen. 
So the second characteristic spoken of in Deuteronomy 34 is that, like Moses, he would see God the Father face to face. And this was in large part why the Jews of Jesus' day were trying to kill him, because he claimed not only that he saw God the Father face to face, but that he was the incarnate nature of God himself. Look at John 5.18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. But as we all know, Jesus hadn't just seen the Father. Jesus was sent from the Father, yes, but he in fact was actually the manifest bodily presence of the Father God in human form. And with this context of Deuteronomy that we have in our minds and the characteristic of the prophet to come, turn with me to John chapter 6, and I think it will be clarified to a great extent as Jesus talks that a lot of what he said and a lot of what was recorded in the gospel accounts are based very much so on the Old Testament, which makes me sad for many Christians who believe they can toss out the old, old just in favor of the new. Take a look at John 6, 28. So Jesus is speaking about being the bread of life, and uh, they found him, uh, the people that were following him, and asked the rabbi, asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Notice the need for a sign there. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. What are they thinking of? They're thinking of Torah. So they're saying, you need to be a leader like what's talked about in Torah. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, you've elevated this guy and I'm outranking him right now. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, why would he say that, guys? Who was it that brought food down from heaven to the Jews in the Torah? It was God. He said that, but in the eyes of the Israelites, who was it? Moses. And who was it who used his staff to strike the rock and bring forth water? Moses. Jesus is trying to get them to go, guys, put down Moses for a second. Eyes up here, right? I'm God, the one you're trying to follow, okay? That's what he's doing here. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have, you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, he's building himself up as the leader of a greater exodus, the exodus out of the kingdom of darkness. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? In other words, we saw him running around. 
as a little guy. We know who this guy is. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You think the Torah is important to know in understanding who Jesus Christ is? <laughs> Skip ahead to me, with me to uh, John 10, 22. Hopefully you guys see what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, no one can outrank me. You all followed Moses because he saw God face to face. I've seen the Father because I am from God, but I come to you as the Father's earthly presence. Look here at John 10, 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the anointed one, meaning the anointed Christ, the agent of God talked about in Isaiah, meaning the prophet of the Torah. Are you the whole shebang? Tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's not saying BFFs for life, guys. That's saying literally, I and the Father are one. One triune God, three persons. God who is spirit manifested in the mortal man, Jesus Christ, who was both man and God. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. If it were just BFFs, they would not have been this upset. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from my Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. No one has seen the face of God and lived, the Bible says except the one who comes down from God, God himself manifested in Jesus Christ. You see, dear church, you and I sit in the blessed and miraculous space of knowing the one for whom Moses was looking, the one to whom Moses was pointing. In Jesus the Christ, we see the greatest prophet. But more importantly, in Jesus, we see the very God that Moses was serving and that gave the law to Israel so that they might respond to his covenant love. I deeply hope that throughout Deuteronomy, you have been able to understand fully that the law of God was never, ever intended as a saving measure from which we can attain our own eternal life. What the Torah does tell us is that God is gracious and loving, one who desires to save and rescue his people. It has been that way since Genesis 1 all the way until the end of Revelation. He's faithful in that call and in that action. 
It was the statement of grace and promise of grace long before the Gospels were ever written. And Deuteronomy showed us this. In the introduction to Deuteronomy, I shared this quote from John Salehammer, a wonderful professor and theologian who's now with the Lord. He put it this way. He said, The Pentateuch itself was not written to teach Israel the law. The Pentateuch was addressed to a people living under the law and failing at every opportunity. The Pentateuch looks beyond the law law of God to his grace. The purpose of the Pentateuch is to teach its readers about faith and hope and the new covenant and in the prophet to come. Jesus was able to offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross of Calvary that would pay the eternal price of rebellion against an eternal God because he was and is that eternal God. He was able to pay that eternal price. And Jesus was able to resurrect from the grave because he alone has the power over life and death. He alone has the power to forgive sins and to overcome the power of the grave. If you do not know Jesus Christ as the prophet of the truth of God, as the priest who is provided and is himself the sacrifice for your sin against the holy God, if you do not know him as the king who you should rightly bend the knee to and allow to rule your life, then today is the day for you to repent and turn to him in confession. It is only in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that our sins will be removed and we will be allowed to enter into the fullness of the eternal promise of God. Even one like Moses, who in his earthly actions still was marred by his sinful nature and was not allowed to enter the promised land, even he was looking to one who could fulfill the ultimate need, a way to heal the breach of relationship that our sin has brought between us and our gracious God. You see, even one as righteous as Moses needed God to make up for his sinful failure. And in beautiful fashion, the biblical authors show us that God is so powerful, so forgiving, and so loving that he can eternally overcome even Moses' sin. Deuteronomy 34 says, Moses, there is a consequence to your earthly action, and that earthly action, the consequence will be death without full attainment of restoration. But if you turn with me to Luke 9, where Paul led, uh, led us in earlier, in Luke 9, we see the gospel shown in great detail, the good news of the power of God's forgiveness. Earthly consequences were reaped by Moses because he had rebelled, in a sense, against God, even as the man of God, the servant of God. But here in Luke 9, we see what happened, the transfiguration. Let's read it again. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. This is Jesus. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now this is in Mount Tabor, most likely, or Mount Hermon. We don't know which. They, they think most likely Mount Tabor, but it's in the promised land. It's in the land that Moses had been looking down upon in Deuteronomy 34. And it says that Moses and Elijah were talking with him, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Hold on to that word departure there for a second. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. What's the mistake he's making here, guys? He's still lifting up men. 
Moses is so cool. He's, he's all, you know, you're almost as cool as him. Jesus, you've almost made it into the club, man. Right? He didn't know what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, my beloved. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. I weep for Jewish brothers and sisters who are so close and yet so far because they don't see Jesus alone. In fact, they don't see Jesus at all. I pray that they would be able to have Moses and Elijah, the prophets and the law, disappear so that Jesus could raise up in their minds and hearts as the true Savior. Through the authority of Jesus and the work of God, Moses eventually did make it into that promised land. But it was no longer because he was the leader of the exodus of God's people out of a kingdom of darkness. It was because he, the servant of God, was assisting God himself in the form of Jesus Christ. Moses was standing there with Jesus as a servant of God, as a servant of Jesus. And he was helping God incarnate, Jesus Christ, accomplish something important here. Do you know what the word for departure is in the Greek? It's the word exodon. It's where we get the word exodus. He was helping Jesus Christ accomplish the greater exodus. The exodus from the kingdom of darkness through his death, resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of his Holy Spirit. In Jesus, the Exodus King whom Moses served became man and dwelt among us. He died for us. He raised the head of us. He sits enthroned above us at this moment. He has poured out his spirit into us as his living, breathing, incarnate body in this world to present to the world the image of who God, the Exodus God, the creator God is so that we might show them that they are drawn to him by his kindness and love. It is not just a gospel verse here or there that speaks to the reign of Jesus as king over this world. It is the entire word of God that bears witness and testifies that those who do not respond to his call will eventually fall under his judgment. And so if you are not allegiant to him today, then turn to him today. And if you want to know more or want to give your life to him, some of the elders will be in the back there against that wall uh, during worship time, and they would love to pray with you and talk with you and call you into a discipleship relationship so that you can respond to what we've heard today. If you already know Jesus as your Savior and King, though, let's close out this book by asking this one last question. What should we take away from the book of Deuteronomy? Well, hopefully each of you have dozens of takeaways. I've been so encouraged to talk to probably a third of you by this point about the things that you've been learning in Deuteronomy. And a number of you have been very honest, and I love it. I didn't think I'd learn anything in Deuteronomy because, you know, it's Deuteronomy. And then as we went through it, I've been so blessed, and I've been blessed to hear that. But I want you to focus on the main point this morning. And so I'm going to call to mind the title of our first week in this book, that the introduction to Deuteronomy was this, a call to covenant faithfulness. This is the point of the entire book in response. In that first week, I said this. This is a quote from my first uh, sermon in Deuteronomy. Great speeches ignite our hearts to action. They inspire us to be all that we can be. 
And they call us to a greater reality than that in which we currently exist. And we, dear friends, have before us in Deuteronomy just such a speech. Brothers and sisters of Mission Fellowship, has Deuteronomy called us to action? Has it called you individually to action? Has it called your family to action? Has it called us to live in a way by which others can look at our lives and say, surely this great kingdom of disciples is a wise and understanding people? For what people, like Mission Fellowship, has a God so near to it as Jesus Christ is to them? Whenever they call on him, whenever they live for him, whenever they walk in his teachings by loving one another and calling others into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Is that what people see when they look at us? Has it called us to covenant faithfulness towards our faithful God? Has it called us to covenant faithfulness towards his people, the church? Has it called us to covenant faithfulness to our spouses and to our children and to our siblings? You see, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we learned more about our mission as God's people. We learned that entering into a personal relationship with God as king through Jesus Christ isn't just about where you are going when you die. It's about accepting his offer of his own life in place of yours as a sacrifice for your sin. It's about pledging your allegiance to him as your king every moment of every day. It is about being on mission in those moments to proclaim through your attitude, your actions, your words, your priorities, and your lifestyle that you are his, bought with the price of his own blood. It's about realizing that your life is not your own. It has been won. It has been purchased and redeemed by the God of gods, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. In Deuteronomy, we have confirmation of the faithfulness of the Exodus God. But more importantly, in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, we have confirmation of the faithfulness of the Exodus God. And so, you have been called to covenant faithfulness as a response to the faithfulness of the Exodus God. And so I want to ask you today, will you respond? Will you move forward at this point in your life, never looking back, but understanding that from this point on, life is about covenant faithfulness? In what ways this morning might you need to ask yourself, in what ways are you not responding to Christ in covenant faithfulness? In what ways have you stiffened your neck against him or against his people? Is it in your relationships? Is it in turning to idols for comfort that you know you should lay down? Is it in walking in apathy? Is it in looking to humans rather than God for your identity? Is it in rationalizing your lack of obedience because of other people's disobedience or apathy? The overriding truth of the Bible is that our God is faithful. He is the faithful God and the King of kings. Have you answered the call of covenant faithfulness? And are you walking it out each day to the best of your ability by the power of his Holy Spirit in the midst of the support of the fellowship of the Spirit? Has that been the effect of Deuteronomy on your life? I really hope it has. I know it has for me. It has called me to a greater covenant faithfulness than I ever understood before. Because just like Moses, you and I have been asked to lay down our lives as servants of the Lord, not so that we can pick them back up in this life, but so that we can have them eternally and so that the world might make the name of Jesus great. 
And so as we finish Deuteronomy and as we go to the table of communion this morning, let's reaffirm our commitment to lay down our own lives as his servants, not just in the model of Moses, but in the model of the one greater than Moses, our prophet, our priest, our king, our savior, Jesus the Christ. And just as he acted in perfect covenant faithfulness, let's respond with a call to one another to do the same.